Good evening. Have you ever heard of a group called the Optimist Club? I think it's actually called Optimist International, maybe is what it's called. But the Optimist Clubs, if you've ever heard of them, they were formed, the international, the, the, the big joint combined effort was formed in Louisville in 1919, so here in Kentucky. And Optimist Clubs, among other things, do uh, different tasks, but they sponsor a lot of youth sports leagues. They sponsor essay contests for students, and they do scholarships as well as some other things as well. But it's all geared toward uh, young folks. And in fact, uh, the motto of the Optimist Club is called Friends of Youth. And tonight we're talking about optimism, but I wanted to mention that there at the beginning because it seems like that optimism is strongest when we're younger and often fades to when we're older, to the point where it seems like the older we get, the more we sometimes feel like More than anything, we just wait on the other shoe to drop. Something bad may be to happen. But tonight we're going to talk about optimism. And in particular, uh, you can see there in our title, Mustard Seeds, Shining Lights, and Finding the Most Joy in Christianity. I like the picture because nothing about that picture seems to make sense, right? Uh, when you laid the first stone there, there was no chance that it was going to turn out like this. Um, but if you had assigned this to someone to try and create, there's probably two views of it. An optimist would have said that'll work. A pessimist might have said that it won't. I think we are quite often, or too often, pessimistic within the church over so many different things. And a lot of times our pessimism is based on things that happened in the past. And that's probably fair because optimism and pessimism do tend to come from that. But I think if we're not careful, we let, opti- we let those pessimistic thoughts of things that happened in the past sort of dictate what happens in the future. And we look at things in a sort of what negative uh, sense as a result. Let's talk a little bit about optimism in the Old Testament. We can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6, we read, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Probably familiar verses to you right there. Put the picture there because I like the picture. Uh, As you can see, those are two uh, uh, trapeze artist type deals that would be swinging from one rope. And that is a elephant swinging toward a little bitty monkey right there. It's very optimistic uh, that you think that it's going to catch you. Uh, we can see it there in, uh, in the picture. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. Not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jeremiah 29.11, some of you may have this hanging in your house. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That's Mary's favorite uh, verse. We have one of those hanging up in one of our, uh, in the, uh, the hallway, I believe. Psalm chapter 31, verse 24, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart, all, who, all you who hope in the Lord. All four very optimistic 
verses there, things that have us uh, excited and look forward to. The New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that all things work together to the good, uh, for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. No new verses on any of those, I don't believe. And finally, Revelation 21, and 4, 21 verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And as you can see, the picture that I've got there with it, the former things passed away and are moving out of the uh, rain and out of the clouds. Uh, and into the sun. For often, it seems like we'd rather stay right here rather than move over to the other one. So tonight, I want us to look at a couple of different things <clears throat> about optimism. I want to start with the parable of the mustard seed. So let's turn to Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 13 here to start with. And we're going to look at this for just a little bit. And then we're going to hit on a few different things as well. But Matthew chapter 13, Ben read uh, the, uh, the, the parable of the pearl, uh, great price. We also could have looked at the, uh, the persistent widow that we see in Luke chapter 18. I thought about doing that, but I decided uh, this one instead. Uh, the problem with the parable of the mustard seed is it only takes up two verses. So uh, we'll go a little bit deeper uh, than that, but the parable of the mustard seed. Matthew chapter 13. Verses 31 and 32. So I'll give you a second uh, to get there. But I want us to think about what this is. And uh, if you look at this picture, this is the mustard seed and this is its growth into a tree. Some of you may be familiar with mustard seed. Some of you may not. Uh, in our neck of the woods, maybe a tobacco seed works better than a mustard seed as an explanation for this, but really almost any kind of seed. You buy, it's amazing to me, those little cartridges of seeds, that there's so much in there, and they're so tiny, and they ever one grow into something that is completely, it's, it does not match what comes in the package, we'll put it that way. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31, uh, verses 31 and 32. Linda, do you care to read this? All right, so I want to think about a few different things here. The first question, to what is Jesus liken a mustard seed in this parable? Well, in the first verse, in verse 31, he said that the... the all right, and so it says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And that doesn't seem right, does it? Because a mustard seed is what? Very small. Very small. And I, it's hard to imagine a kingdom being very small, right? That doesn't really seem to match up right there. Those are almost literally word for word, except for place mustard seed with pearl with what Ben read there just a few moments ago. So as the mustard seed, or after the mustard seed has been sown, according to the parable, two things happen. First, it is greater than what? Again, we're in verse 31 and 32 here. It's 
All right, it is greater, uh, it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a what? And becomes a tree. So this tiny mustard seed becomes greater than anything else. It grows into uh, a, a tree. And I don't know exactly how big a mustard tree gets, but I know how big most trees get. And most trees are much bigger than this tiny little seed that we're looking at right here. So what we see here is a bit of growth that comes from something really small into something much larger. So how can something so small produce something so big? How can something so small produce something so big? Well, Jesus' ministry, for example, is small comparison in all the world is just in you know, Israel, which is just a very, very small part of the world, but through that little seed, it spread out through the entire world. Absolutely. A young couple can get married and have a few children, and after a while, if you do the genealogy, they have, there's hundreds of thousands of sure. relatives yeah. to that family. Just from one man to one woman get married and have a kid, if, 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 if nothing goes wrong, it will just explode. So... All right. Yeah, absolutely. So we think about something small, and it can produce something so big. But the problem that we sometimes have is we look at something small from the get-go, and what do we immediately think? Worthless. Worthless. What do we think? Something small. Like one acre seems not worth anything. Right. It's pretty good for a squirrel. Right. But if you're not careful, if, you, if that acre gets in the right place, it'll grow a tree that will shade generations of people. True. Sure. So when we see something like this, this idea of something so small producing something so big, you know, Ben mentioned faith there just a minute ago, and that's we, we can think about that. You know, our faith may waver from time to time; it may grow or it may weaken or whatever. But the start was we have no faith, right? I mean, our faith, and I don't know what age that comes, but I, I think in religious, it has to be introduced to you in some form. So we start with very little. It's going to grow into something much larger. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 6, Jesus referred to faith as a mustard seed. So what does he mean when he describes it like that? What is Jesus saying? You can turn back to Luke 17, 6 if you want to and read it, but that's what we see here. So what does Jesus mean when he describes faith as a mustard seed? Once you make it a little initial step out of view, or that middle initial baptism, whatever, as long as you stay in God, that will continue to grow and grow and grow until eventually maybe you're up there preaching or teaching or whatever, then, like your mom's case, where she taught Sunday school all the years, you know, that little faith that started out in her, you know, how far is it will spread out now? Sure. The first time somebody, to, to, to piggyback off Ben's example, when you walk out, the faith that it takes to step out into the aisle, we'll just say that. Well, you don't walk all the way up to the front and preach a 30 minute sermon the minute you walk out there. That's not how that works, right? Most of the time when you're walking, there may be some jitters, some nerves. You may remember this from whenever that day might have been uh, with you. But as Ben said there, that's going to grow. And so when you plant that tiny seed, when you plant that mushroom seed, does the tree sprout up overnight? No. Is it, you know, is it taller than this building, you know, the next morning when you get up? No, it's the same way. You raise a whole lot of tobacco the same way, right? You plant that seed 
When does the back get up here? <laughs> it takes a little while, right? It doesn't, you, it's a whole lot of work between here and between here, right? Too much work, probably. Uh, that's there in between. So Jesus describes faith in that same way. There has to be some growth that's there. But if we look at something really small and from the get-go we say, well, that's not going to work. We're looking at that from a pessimistic sense. So let's imagine that Christian or that person who's about to become a Christian, if they walk out of the aisle, the first thing we say is, well, they don't, they, they, you know, this will take a lot of work. It's going to be hard for you to do this. I, you know, it'll be really tough for you. What kind of attitude is that? How many of you have ever heard, after somebody was baptized or whatever, heard somebody utter a phrase similar to this, that's the best decision you'll ever make? We've probably all heard something like that. Now, how many of you have ever heard somebody after that, they said something along the lines of, now it's time to start doing some work for God or something like that? Right? Well, you don't immediately start preaching, but there's growth. You know, if you plant the seed, but you don't water it, what's going to happen to it? It's going to die. So there's got to be some growth. But there's a lot of people that have to factor in to this. And a lot of times, there has to be some luck that factors into it as well. You talked about an acre. There's a whole lot of acorns that fall to the ground and rot away, right? But there's a lot of oak trees too. So something happened somewhere with some of them. Now, we have to work to help grow other people. But sometimes some things just sort of have to happen along the way as well. But if we look at everything in this negative sense, we're not going to grow anything. Question five. What role does optimism play in our own faith? always negative and looking down and thinking that you'll fail, you'll, you'll never succeed. When you go out the first time you witness to someone, if you're so scared of what they're rejecting you and everything else, you're going to defeat yourself. When you go into talking to someone, if you're not confident in what you're selling, if you're not confident in what their response will be, you'll kill the deal before they even get started. It's like Paul Strayson said, you know, he can never go out there and sell shavings because he's a poor man. He'd never, <laughs> never be able to do it successfully because he didn't believe it. Do you know what an oxymoron is? One word. If something is an oxymoron, it's two things that are not compatible. Okay? Army intelligence. Army intelligence, I guess. <laughs> if you want that, that's, I don't know, I'm, I didn't say that. Right, that's, that's what I did. All right? But is pessimistic faith an oxymoron? So by definition, faith is something that you're just sort of hoping for, right? Because the thing about faith is, the, you know, what the, the biblical definition or whatever is you're hoping for something, right? What's the definition of faith that we sometimes give? The substance of things. Substance of things what? Hope for. Evidence of what? Things what? Not seen. Well, none of those things are real in the sense of I am holding on to faith. No, I'm holding on to a shirt. That's not what it is. So when we think about faith, we are hoping for something greater. So can there be pessimistic faith? No. no. It's, it's impossible. But do you know pessimistic Christians? Absolutely. I struggle with that. I struggle with the fact that we can't have pessimistic faith, but we can have a room full of people who describe themselves as pessimistic. Where would you put Thomas at? I don't know. That's a good question. Where would you put Thomas at? He was, he was pessimistic. Well, I think Thomas 
doubted, he asked for some proof, right? But whenever the proof was shown to him, how does Thomas respond? He says, my Lord and my God. So it changed. So I think Thomas would have been described as pessimistic if he said, no chance, that's Jesus, and then left. But he didn't approach him. Curiosity. Maybe so. Maybe. You know, he, he wanted to see it. It wasn't just like, I'm interested. Yeah. He wanted to see it. I mean, he, if he wasn't going to believe it all, I don't think he would have ever asked to see that. He wanted, he wanted to see. He wanted proof of it. Sure. So optimism plays a, a, a vital role because we have faith that when our life is over, where will we go to heaven? End? Go to heaven. Have you ever talked to anybody who's went to heaven? No. Not the way that works, is it? In fact, the Bible tells us there, what about the, the, the rich man of Lazarus, right? He wanted to do what? When he was he was sitting there in, the, in just the worst situation, he wanted to do what? He said, well, he wanted somebody to go tell his brothers. Jesus And God said, it's just not possible, right? It's impossible. It's impossible. Huge gulf that's fixed that you couldn't stretch from one to the other anyway. But that faith is what keeps us coming back, this hope of something. So there has to be some optimism in there. So those of us who might lean on the pessimistic side, I'd still argue that there's some optimism in there as well. You know, I think, it, I think with our faith in God, it, uh, optimism is important. I think this optimism is important when you choose to get married. When you choose to have children, when you choose to go to work. That's the days of post office, honey, that was hard. I mean, they were bad days. And it was easy to lose your faith, you know. With, well, I don't want the end result is going to be. It's killing me, this is. And sometimes marriages are that way, or, you know, raising children. There's some dark days and hard days. But you say, well, I know there'll be some dark days in the marriage. I know there'll be some dark days at the post office of my job. I know there'll be some dark days raising children. But I'm going to do it anyway, okay? It's just like being a Christian. It's not all flowers and roses, you know. Sure. I mean, it's not. There's hard times. There's controversies. There's arguments. There's people getting mad and stuff. Uh, it's not all optimistic, you know. And but you still walk by faith, not by sight, and you press on. And that, that carries you through your job, your marriage, whatever. It, it can get you to the end result. So, anybody else want to add anything to number six up there? I think that answered that. Pretty good, but what's the main teaching then of this parable? Because I didn't ask you, but you kind of delved into that a little bit. But what's the main teaching of this parable? What's Jesus? This is these are words of Jesus here in Matthew 13. So what's he teaching? Don't you have to have faith. Have to have faith, right? Optimistic faith is unquenchable. Optimistic faith is unquenchable. And you've also got to remember where your faith should be, because no matter how bad your life here on earth is. That's that's not your end game. Your end game is to go to heaven. It doesn't matter how how bad your life might be. Right. You have to be optimistic for what's going to be at the end of it. Others on the others on the last one. And then we'll go back to our tree, our oak tree. You may see an oak tree that's got a really bad crook in it. Okay, the reason it's got a really bad crook is because of the wind or a tree fell into it. Something bad happened along the way, right. and it's got this. Real, but it still persevered and it made its way to the skyline. You know, and uh, where it can be a majestic oak. Okay. Yep. And finally, see that he's talking about is planted in everybody's heart by God. Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless the Father first called." So God plants that seed in every one of our hearts. And as long as you keep your heart open and successful to it, don't let it be a starting ground or a hard ground and stuff like that, and keep an optimistic view of it, Jesus says over time, it's going to be this giant tree. And I've 
Googling a mustard tree. Yeah. And it, it is a huge, giant tree. I mean, it looks like a big tree out in Africa. So right. Little, and all the animals in the world get under. He says, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a long time, but when it finally matures, it's going to be this big, beautiful thing that can shelter all of your family, neighbors, and everything. Other thoughts on the last one. We're going to move forward here in just a second, but just three things that I've written down, the uh, main teachings or thoughts on this parable. One, uh, don't place limits on things. Uh, we look at a mustard seed and we already limit it, right? We can't, it can't be any better because it's so small. We, we can't put limits on it. Do we put limits on our faith sometimes? Yes. Second thing, don't fret about what's impossible. We look at a seed and we plant that seed and the first thing we think of is, well, it'll be really hard for this to grow. It'll be really difficult. It's just going to be almost impossible for this to grow. And then it grows up a little bit and I don't know how much, you know, here it is. But if we're not careful, we spend all of our time thinking this can't really be any better than what it is. What if that happens in the church? This can't be any better than what it is. Is that a negative, pessimistic attitude I have? Of course, if people have that. The third thing, we got to let the light shine just a little bit. And that's what we're going to talk about here for the rest of the time. Let our light shine. Light is, by definition, optimistic. I think that's something that it opens things up. Darkness is more pessimistic. So let's, first of all, we're going to look at four ways. I think it's four. It might have been five. I think it's four, though. Four ways that... Um, <clears throat> We can sort of be optimistic. And these are some verses and some thoughts as well. So I'll call on you. They may not show up. They're a little smaller just because I've tried to get four things on uh, for each one. But the first verse here is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through uh, 14. Titus 2, 11, 14. Now we need to read Titus 2, 11 to 14. So the first thought here is to live a righteous life. What does that mean to be righteous? God like to do the right thing. So why would an optimist want to live a righteous life? They believe in God's promises. Okay. Believe in God's promises. What else? It's the best life possible. Okay. You you show me somebody that's always breaking the law, in and out of jail, you know, even out of rehab. That, that's a problematic life, okay? Sure. And there's never any comfort. Any comfort. Uh, a righteous life is comfortable, you know, in so many ways. You uh, things are decent and in, in, in order, as the Bible says. Sure. I think the main reason that a righteous life is out of gratitude and thankfulness to what the righteousness that was given us. We're none of us righteous on our own. Yeah. Not one of our righteousness with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit helping us. Yeah. So the main goal for living a righteous life is not to earn your way to heaven. You've already got that. But it's to honor the one who gave you such a great one. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. Second, James 
21 and 27 says to live unspotted from the world. Uh, uh, Jill, you could read James 1 27. And this is really a difficult passage, right? This is a challenge for all uh, to do, but to live unspotted from the world, because it's easy to get spotted, right? How many of you have ever spilled something before? <laughs> Probably more times than not for some of us. Yeah. Every white t-shirt I own has got the taco drippings on them. Every single one of them that I have. And we'll have supper, and then, you know, about halfway through the meal, Mary will look at me, she'll say, oh, I know it's a plain white t-shirt, I can't even eat tacos, and like, I could never eat them out in public, because you have to wear something real then. You know, I've got a t-shirt, and I hose in the back, trying to spray me down after it's over with. But it's, if we're not careful, every time I have ever sat down to eat tacos, I have never once said, I long to spill this out my shirt. But what happens if you're not careful? This fails right now. So what happens if we're not careful? James 1 and 27. We can be spotted. Now, some, there's, I've never once tried to pour tacos down my shirt, but sometimes that just happens. Sometimes it just happens. But if we're working really hard, we have to try really hard to avoid being spotted. Any kind of thing, that they, any kind of thing there uh, can, can, be, uh, can be difficult for us. Jesus, Jesus describes that in the judgment scene. They say, well, when have you seen us, you know, uh, yes. do these bad things? And he said, in as much as you did it not to the least to one of these, you did it a bit. Yes. So that's, a, that's your, those people are spotted at the judgment scene that Jesus is talking about. And you can go around and say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't see anything. But did you look after people that was hungry? Well, no, I, I should keep myself pure. And if you're not careful, then you, uh, you, you let yourself get spotted. A lot of times, it's not what we do wrong a lot of times, it's the right things you can get. It's what um, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 there. I uh, To continue with the living a righteous life, do not be conformed to the world. Uh, Leland, do you care to read Romans 12, 1 and 2, sir? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your original <coughs> service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This verse, the third verse here goes after the second one, right? Because it's easy to become spotted if we're not careful, but if we're not conformed, if we're, in, in, in a sense, as we live just read there, sort of working to avoid that, it's much easier to avoid the spotting, uh, if we would keep using the term there from James. The fourth one, be separate from the world. <coughs> this is first, or second Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, come out from among the, them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my son and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So when we think about this notion of living a righteous life, as I was kind of prepping for this and thinking about this, I was thinking about how if we're not really careful, we can paint everybody in a really negative way. These people are just awful. It's, people are terrible. 
Well, we've always said that. And if you say something along and long enough, you'll start to believe it, right? And, and that's, if we start, if we go back to optimistic pessimistic, then we can fall into that sort of pessimistic version. Well, are there bad people in the world? Yes. Were there when every one of these verses were written? But what if some of the people had chosen to just fall in there with them? Just to stay on that pessimistic side. What would have been the long-term effects? What if more people had said, I'm going to be pessimistic rather than optimistic? How would that hurt the church going forward? It would have died out. It would have died out. It would have died out. It wouldn't have been anything close to what it becomes. And so if our goal is to preach and teach the Word of God, our goal is to grow the church. We can't fall into the pessimistic trap. There. We have to. We can't say, "Well, everybody else is doing it, so why can't I?" But also, we have to keep this sort of optimistic sense that what I'm doing is beneficial not only for me but for people going forward as well. Second, do good works. First of all, in Ephesians chapter two and verse ten, we read that the Christian is created to do good works. Uh, and if you care to read Ephesians two and ten. So have you ever thought, well, I'm not going to do that because I don't think it's going to help anything? <laughs> you ever thought, have you ever had that thought before? It's a pessimist thought, first of all. But we are created to do what? To do good works. To do good works. And people fuss and fight about this all the time. Working your way into heaven and all that. That's not the point of this right here. Is that we're created. Our, our responsibility is to do good works. When we read later to know to do good and do it not, that's why. To read that that's sin. And so one of the ways to stay optimistic is to stay doing positive things. Keep working towards something that's beneficial. <clears throat> We're to do good to all men. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. We still need care to read this one. Galatians 6 and 10. So we're, our responsibility is to do good to all people, right? Our, our responsibility is to do, but they won't appreciate it, right? They won't appreciate. They'll waste this. I feel like we've talked about this a little bit uh, before, but if we approach things with, "I'm going to do this for her," but there ain't no way she's going to appreciate it. What's wrong with that attitude? You did it for the wrong reasons. We're doing it for the wrong reasons. But do we ever approach things that way? Yeah. Of course we. A little bit, uh, a little bit. And also, like in the verse, a couple of verses before that, about you are to come out and be separate from the unfortunate ones that don't do right. But that doesn't mean you don't run with them and do what they do, but you still are good to them and you do sure. good to them. The third one here, produce the fruit of the Spirit. It's been several months back. I parked you up and y'all had fruits of the Spirit, part person. <coughs> 
Everybody had to move the seats, and some of y'all seemed like you seen total four land by the time it was over with. It was the, some of y'all thought it was the best night ever, and some of y'all might have thought it was the worst. I don't know, I won't point at who thought what. But Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we read, but the fruit of the Spirit, and there's several of them here. Fruit of the Spirit is love, what's the next one? Joy, peace, long-suffering, or patience, what's next? Kindness, or gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what else? Self-control. Against such, there is no law. And so those are all things that it says produce the fruit of the Spirit. So to produce something means what? You got to grow it. You got to it. You have to produce something. You have to, so does that mean it's going to require some effort on our part? To do good works, that's going to require some effort on our part. But we're told that that work that we're doing, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is work that we're doing to do what? What's the purpose of this? What's the point of this? To produce good works. The fruit of what? Capitalized. This is not the fruit of Daniel or the fruit of those buildings. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a responsibility and requirement for us. I heard not see that verse as I think about you imagine somebody going up to the, the judge's office or the police office and said, Well, my neighbor, he is just so peaceful, I can't believe it. <laughs> or he is so full of joy. The police the police are just, what are you talking about? That's wonderful. Right. And those are all yeah, he's really practicing self control. Well, what a nice thing to do. Any of those things. And that was that deflates the enemy, those things right there. Yeah, they really deflate it. And they lift you up. But if I love you, she's probably, they probably don't love you back. Love them anyway. If I'm good to them, they probably won't be good back to me. That's, that's just a viewpoint. How easy, though, is it to fall into that? Super easy. Third, have a forgiving spirit. A lot of times we're pessimistic because we struggle to forgive, right? I have this negative impression because they've done something wrong. I'm going to have a hard time forgiving them. And I know what they've done. And so I don't really have a whole lot of faith in them going forward. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. How do you get it read that one? And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. We've talked, this, that, nobody here is hearing Ephesians 4 32 for the first time right there. But who was the best forgiver of all? Jesus. 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 Who we deserve it? Do we still deserve it? Not really. Do we still mess up even after we've been forgiven? We of course do. And we continue to see that forgiveness. Now, if Jesus can do it, why can't I? Well, but Jesus doesn't know what I've had to go through, right? That we sometimes fall into that trap and we're not careful. Well, we think that, well, he was God, and of course he can do it. Yes. Because God's love is so much greater than her. But Jesus was man. Yeah. When he forgave him on the cross, he was man. Yep. When he forgave the Pharisees for always fighting against him, he was man. When he forgave Judas, who yes. he knew was leading him to death, he kissed him and said, Free, well, yep. you know, do what you gotta do. We struggle. We need to properly reflect Christ. What does it mean to reflect? You have reflectors, you've seen reflectors on the road. They put those little reflectors down, put them down between the yellow lines. And when it's dark, when your light hits that, what happens? 
They shine back up. Why don't they shine during the day? Why don't they shine at 2 o'clock when you're driving town to the store or whatever? It's not dark. It's not dark. There's nothing to reflect. Right? You're, not so, you're not shooting any light to them. But we need to properly reflect Christ. When Christ's light shines on us, what do we have to do? It needs to bounce off and shine back. Luke 23, verse 34, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Daniel or Ben or Jimmy or Lucille, 23, and verse 34, says, Father, they have made me mad, and I ain't never forgive them, right? That's what our verse a lot of times says, isn't it? But that's not at all what Jesus said. What color are the words up there on the screen? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How many times have you uttered that sentence? Probably with your eyes rolling back in your head, trying not to think bad thoughts, right? But we have to reflect back. Because if we can't forgive, is there home for us in heaven? Be hard, right? Be tough because Jesus forgave us. When not all those reflectors, they work the same in the daytime as they do in the night, but you don't notice them in the day yep. because it's so bright. That's the same way with us. If you're just doing good to those who do good to you, it's not going to shine very far. Right. If you're reflecting the darkness and things are not going your way, where people are doing that, that's when that light's really going to stand out really shine. Absolutely. That was way better than what I wrote down. Thank you, man. There's a lot of All right, next one. Follow the example of Stephen. Real quick. Stephen, this is Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, but this is about 10 verses. Uh, in Acts chapter 7. Do we know what happened with Stephen? First of all, do we know why Stephen was in trouble in the first place? He was preaching Jesus. If you turn to Acts chapter 7, Stephen actually says a few things that uh, probably you, you don't want to say in front of the judge or in front of the people uh, that are maybe trying. Uh, Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, we read, these are the words of Stephen. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, exclamation mark, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Stephen says, you know, he said he calls them names in a sense, and he says, you reject the Holy Spirit, but it ain't nothing new. Your dads did the exact same thing. So not only are they insulting you, they're insulting the family there as well, Stephen's saying. But Stephen is telling them this because they have done what to the preaching and teaching of Jesus? They had crucified him. In verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So Stephen gives three verses right here of just excoriation against the people that are putting him on trial. Imagine saying that to the judge right there. What happened to Stephen? They took him right out and they stoned him right there on the spot. What does Acts chapter 7 and verse 60 say right here? Stephen said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen had spoken the truth, had immediately been punished, and been punished in a cruel way that brought death upon him. And the last words that he says is, don't charge them with the sin. The actual words that probably should have said was, they should all be charged with this. They were 100% in the wrong. We say that, right? 
But the example of Stephen is what? When somebody sins against us, what do we need to do? It's just, it, it, he's reflecting Jesus hanging on the cross. You gotta let it roll off our backs. It's hard. Our forgiveness is contingent on forgiving others. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. How many of you care to read that? Would you forgive men Pretty straightforward, right? I believe it's written in red there as well. This is right kind of square in the middle of the uh, Sermon on the Mount where Jesus outlines it pretty simple. If you forgive people when they sin against you, who's going to forgive you? God. God. But what if you don't? Pretty tough. So we have to have a forgiving spirit. But you have to be optimistic in that because if we're not careful, that pessimism drives us. I can't forgive you. You're gonna, you do all these wrong things. That's the pessimistic attitude right there. Right. That's true. Too much, too mad. Excuse me. That's true. Last one. So we need to be optimistic about our service to the Lord. That's what I want us to go with tonight. These are our last things right there. First of all, optimism is the result of a favorable outlook. We talked about that a minute ago. Optimism is akin to faith. Pessimism is akin to doubt and gloom. You know anybody doubt? You know any doubtful people? Any gloomy people? Man, you can't wait to leave their house, can you? No. You just can't wait to go into the next aisle of the grocery store when you deal with those people. But we see that life problems must be faced in a practical way. Our, uh, whether While life problems must be faced in a practical way, one's outlook, whether optimistic or pessimistic, will determine whether he deals with his problems through strength or through weakness. We have to face every problem that, face that comes to us. And we have to be practical about it. Then you talk about, you know, giving money to help somebody or whatever. And, you know, sometimes you're just going to get messed over. And sometimes you have to make decisions about whether or not this is the right thing for me to do. What do I need to do right here? So there has to be a practicable sense to it. But if every person we see, we automatically think the negative about, is that a practical approach? No. A practical approach is I'm going to assess this based on whatever comes right here and right here. And too often we've made our decision before that situation ever comes up. That's when we show that pessimistic side right there. I'm not going to help. I'm never going to help because one time or other times somebody has not handled it the way I thought or something like that. <coughs> we can deal with life's problems from a position of strength and optimism because we have the help of others. Right. Have the help of Christ. We're the aid of Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, we read it at the start. I saved it again. I wanted it here at the end. Philippians 4, verse 13 says, I can do all things through, you say that part, through Christ, who does what? Who strengthens me? I'm not strong. Where does my strength come from? Through Christ. And so I look at this, and if I say, I'm not strong, that optimistic or is that pessimistic? I'm not strong. Just those words. Well, it, it, I think it would be very optimistic for a Christian to say, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm leaning on Jesus. There you go. So when we hear someone say, I'm not strong, I don't have that strength, you might be looking at it as a negative sense. But we know who is providing the strength. Who am I leaning on? Who is providing that for me? And so tonight, my hope is, if you've taken something from this, uh, I just may have been somewhat simplistic, but I, I, I spend a whole lot of time with people who are very pessimistic. 
I spend a lot of time with people who are at, at work or whatever that, that kind of drag me down. You may have the same thing. And I would really struggle with that because it's a lot easier to get pulled down than it is to get pulled up or pushed up or lifted up or whatever the term that you want to use right there. But I would encourage all of us within the church, there can be no success in the church if we're always, if we're always pessimistic about what's going to happen. We shouldn't do that because it'll never work. Well, it's not going to work. But if we look at something and say, we can do something from this, we can do this, and it might help us grow a little bit. I think about the uh, house to house harper dolls. How many of you all like to read those magazines? They're really, how many of you have talked to people who have told you they like to read those magazines? How many of you know people that attend this church because of that magazine? Was well, only two or three, four? Do we sometimes say that? We spent all that money and three people started coming to church. How many was coming before? Three less than that, right? What's it worth? So that optimistic approach is what has to be there. We can't start from the negative, we can start from the positive. And perhaps no more optimistic person that ever came along than Jesus, right? No more. But how many times should Jesus have gotten down and out? How many times you see it? He's hanging on the cross doing what? Dying on the cross. Well, what's he doing with people beside him? He's forgiving them. That doesn't make a lick of sense, right? But it's what he's doing, right? David, I was just thinking, if you go to Walmart tomorrow and somebody said, well, how's everything going at church? Well, we just had 16 last night or 18, whatever. Or what you said, we had 18 last night. We had a great Bible study. There's, those are the same words. And, you know, it's just the way you do it. So the charge is optimism. The charge is to be excited. The charge is to take this and go forward. I've enjoyed these. We're not done. I don't mean that with, this, with these verses or with these lessons. I've enjoyed these lessons, though. I, sometimes they come across, when I'm preparing them, they seem a little simplistic, but I think they're kind of good. Uh, kicks sometimes in the hind end, uh, or maybe just a little extra light of fire for us uh, to go forward with as well. So uh, try to be more optimistic. Uh, try to be going forward. The glass, let's look at the glass as well, half full rather than half empty uh, right there. If there's anything we can do, any way to help you, whatever it can be, uh, whatever we can do, we'd invite you to come while we stand and sing. There is coming a day when no heartache